0: Just a quick note to, uh, in regards to the men's retreat. Let me encourage people, if uh, you're fairly new to Melanie Park, um, I would encourage you to consider being a part of the men's retreat. I can't tell you how many guys that I've talked to who were new and didn't have a chance to know a lot of people who came to that men's retreat and would look back on that as kind of a landmark time when they really established some relationships that have remained true for, from, since that time. And so especially if you're uh, new to Melanie Park, I would encourage you guys to to consider being a part of that time. Um, I feel certain you won't regret it, so I hope we have a good group to listen to what David Jaquist has to offer us this year. Well, last week we started our study through Nehemiah, and we began by looking at the the content of his prayer. I think that's an important place to start because prayer should be a, a priority in the life of all believers Think about just even the life of what we do here at Melanie Park as a church. Uh, Many of you get a prayer letter that goes out every single week. We encourage people to pray for the the needs within our body. We set aside a time, usually three or four times a year, where we come together for corporate prayer, where we invite our church family to pray with one another for things that are significant, significant to the life of this church. There's a men's group that prays on Tuesday mornings. Um, And they're faithful to do that and have for for many years. And something tells me that there will even be conversations this morning that will end with some kind of a promise along the lines of, I'll be praying for you. Uh, Prayer is an important priority in the life of the Christian church. But I'm not so sure that sometimes we have it a little backwards in comparison to the the biblical model, especially of what we've seen with, with Nehemiah. Let me explain what I mean. I believe there are two kinds of prayer. and Let me categorize them into my made-up categories. I'm going to call it theocentric prayer and egocentric prayer. Uh, egocentric prayer is one that centers on me. It is one that says that, uh, that I'm the one that this is all about. So let me give you an example. I might have been in a job where I looked at a promotion possibility. And I see that opportunity and I say to myself boy, this really fits my gifts and abilities. I, I could get really excited about doing this new thing. I then look at the possibility of an increase in my salary and I think about what that might be able to do for the security for my family and, and convince myself that it would give us an opportunity to give more to the church or to more people that may be in need. And so as I begin to think about this opportunity, I start to pray and I say, Lord, I, I know You've put this opportunity before me and you, You've placed this on my heart and I really... I pray that I'm able to get this promotion. Egocentric prayer starts with a plan and then asks for God's blessing. It centers around the belief that the diligence of my prayer is what convinces God to move. To the point that the more I pray or the more people I can get to agree with me to pray for that same thing, the more likely it is that God will move in a direction That I desire for Him to move. But in the end, that prayer really centers on me. On my plans. My desires. My hopes. My dreams. Which can all be very noble. Which is the reason we often find ourselves in that place of prayer. But very often we don't stop long enough to ask God's opinion on the matter. But I think the biblical pattern looks a whole lot different. It's what I've called theocentric prayer. And I think that's what we see in the example that we have with Nehemiah. You'll remember in his prayer some of those highlights where he began that prayer. And how did, how did he begin? With, with adoration, right? He says, I beseech you, Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God. He says, I pray on behalf of the people with whom you have made a covenant. We have not been faithful, but You are faithful. And so I pray according to the promise that You have made in Your Word. You see the difference? As we talked about last week, I think Nehemiah's four month of prayer likely included an evolution where he prayed initially for them, for they need Your help, the remnant in Jerusalem. And then began to realize that He's part of that. He says, we need you. And then ultimately, he came to the place where he prayed, God, I need you. Because he realized at that point that he was the answer to his very own prayer. He learned that the power of prayer is not in our ability to change God's mind, but in God's ability to change our heart. So that our heart is centered on Him where our prayer reflects His will. And so we're desiring what is ultimately His plan. And we know that that's where our heart is when we find ourselves in a place that we trust in God's timing, when we rest in God's provision, when we hope in God's promise. When those are the attributes of our life, we know that our prayer is centered on him. And I believe that's what we see unfold in our passage this morning as a result of what we looked at last week in Nehemiah's prayer. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, our desire this morning is to center our hearts on you. We want you to be the focus of our prayer. We want you to be the focus of our time. We want Your promise and what You have revealed to be the very center of what we focus our mind and our attention on this morning. We know that we can't do this without Your Spirit who leads us through Your Word to give us wisdom and understanding that we do not possess on our own. So, Father, may You have Your way in our lives for Your glory. And it's in the precious name of our Savior Jesus Christ that we ask this. Amen. Turn if you will to Nehemiah chapter two uh, verse one. Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, if you will, begin reading with me in uh, verse one. It came about in the month of Nisan in the twin and that's not a car by the way, just it's a month in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King artaxerxes, that wine was before him and I took up the wine, and then gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness on on your heart. Then I was very much afraid. And so I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, Lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Let me go back to verse 1 where he talks about this month of Nisan. That's important because that is actually four months after the month of Chislev, which we read about last week when Nehemiah began praying. And so that's how we know that he spent that four-month period of time praying and, and fasting before the Lord. Spending time in God's Word, considering what he might have him do. He continued to be faithful in his job as the cupbearer to the king, and that's an incredibly important position during that time. Because as the cupbearer of the king, his role was to taste the food and to drink the wine before it was ever given to the king. So that if it was poisoned, they would know it by his death and not the king's. He was literally a human shield protecting the king from anyone who might want to do him harm and although his heart was grieved we know that from last week as he went to the lord in prayer he did his very best not to reveal that in the presence of the king verse 1 tells us that he said in in verse 1 now i had not been sad in his presence now one of the reasons that i think that's true for for nehemiah because, is because I believe it tells us that Nehemiah was unwilling to manipulate the circumstances to create an opportunity for himself before God intended it to be so. He chose not to make a scene. He said, I made sure that I wasn't sad in the presence of the king. Instead, he trusted that God would open the door. And in the meantime, He did his job to be faithful in the role that had been given to him as the cupbearer to that king. The role that God had called him and placed him in. And I thought about this week as I prepared, and I thought, that's really hard to do. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I get often very anxious in my prayers. I'm very impatient many times. I go before the Lord and I request something that I'm convinced is, is good and right in His eyes. And then I get a little bit anxious and a little bit frustrated when he doesn't move in the way and in the timing that I think he should. If that's the case, it's usually a pretty good sign that my heart is not in a place where I'm truly trusting in God. Patient prayer trusts in God's timing. And I believe that's what we see in the life of Nehemiah. He's unwilling to kind of help God out. Because he's trusting that God is going to open the door when that time is right. But I also think Nehemiah understands the reality of what it means when you're sad in the presence of the king. Because during that time, to be sad in the presence of the king was always dealt with in suspicion. That if you were unhappy, that it usually meant that you were probably up to something no good, especially if you were the cupbearer to that king. That's very likely why we read in verse 2 after the king notices that something's not right with Nehemiah, that what does Nehemiah say? I was very much afraid. He might have been afraid because of his inability to, to hold back that emotion that existed in his heart. And at very best, it could cause him to lose his job, right? At very worst, it might cost him his life. But I believe Nehemiah had been praying. And so he quickly realized this just might be the open door that God intended. Which brings up another attribute of patient prayer. It, it helps you see things that you might otherwise have missed. In fact, I think if Nehemiah had not been praying, that it's very possible in this exact same scenario that he would have panicked. He would have understood the pressure of the situation and the implications for who he was so close to the king. And he would have been incoherent and kind of rambled on an answer and created more suspicion in the eyes of the king. But instead, I believe his prayer life prepared him for what the Lord was doing. Because once that door was open and he recognized that this might be the opportunity, he knew exactly what he was going to say. Don't forget how delicate this situation would be. Nehemiah will make a request that is counter to the decree that this king has made to stop the rebuilding in Jerusalem. So, think about what's happening here. He's sad in the presence of the king. That's not a good thing. He's questioned by the king about what's on his mind, and what's on his mind is in direct opposition to a decree that the king has made. Can you appreciate the tension that would have existed in this little scenario? Now maybe we can see why he said, I was very much afraid. Look at how he answers in verse 3 again. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. (laughs) Those are wise words for a man in his situation, right? Nehemiah begins the the conversation with words of respect. He is affirming his loyalty to the king. And then he gives his answer. Nehemiah explains a personal connection to a, a situation of people who are in need but notice, he never specifically gives the place where this is happening. He doesn't ever tell him that it's in Jerusalem, that city where he had made the decree. He describes it as the place of my father's tombs. And if you look at it, you see that, that Nehemiah is simply appealing to the king's sense of compassion and justice those in need he's introducing his concern without ever questioning the king's decree the king's response indicates his desire to help what does he say in verse 4 he says what would you request so nehemiah says so i prayed to the god of heaven just think about that he's been praying for four four months is that not enough right but here in this moment of, of real crisis, I mean, this is, this is the open door potentially, but if it's not, he's a dead man. And so what does he do? Before another word comes out of his mouth, he just stops. In his heart, he prays. I think this tells us that, that Nehemiah, in each step of the way, was unwilling to go about this on his own. I, I think you and I in similar situations might say, okay, God, I see this is open door. You've done a great job of getting me here. Thank you, I'll take it from here. Right? But that's not what we see with Nehemiah. He stops and he prays. And I think that's because the biblical model of prayer always puts us in a place where we are completely dependent upon God. It's the attitude that says, unless God's in this, I don't have a chance. And I believe that's exactly the place where we find Nehemiah. The tension had to be high as this conversation is taking place. And believe it or not, it's about to get even thicker in the room. Look at verse 5. This is his response. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. (laughs) Right out of the chute, Nehemiah says clearly and boldly, I want to rebuild Jerusalem, the city which you made a decree to cause all building to stop. Now, that's not exactly what it says in there, but I promise you that was the implication that the, un- the king understood clearly. Nehemiah has been respectful to the king. He's been loyal in his service. He's been faithful in his prayer. But now it's time to take that step of faith. And in that boldness, there is always an element of risk. That's what we see in the life of Nehemiah. Again, if God doesn't come through based on what he's now said, he's a dead man. And the question the king asked seems to indicate his approval. What does he say? How long will you be gone? How long will this take you? Once again, because Nehemiah has prayerfully considered this opportunity, he was prepared to give a very specific response. We don't know exactly what he says, but Nehemiah indicates, I gave him a definite time. And I think that what that tells us is that he had prepared for this moment and he knew what he was going to say. When God opened the door, his heart was ready. If we could, I want to to pause here and just kind of take a little bunny rabbit trail and, and tell you something I think is absolutely fascinating about what is unfolding in our passage. Now, I do not doubt in Nehemiah's confidence and that it was strengthened by his prayer life, that he had a conviction that was confirmed by his time in, in God's Word. But I also wonder if he knew that God had called him to a most important task based on a prophetic promise made by God Himself. You see, one of the obstacles in Understanding God's Word is when we consider one book of the Bible independent from all the others. In other words, we study Nehemiah, but it gives no connection to what's happening in Genesis. Or no connection to what's happening in Judges or or Jeremiah. But the truth is, every single book in the Bible is tied to the others as a single record of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And even more than that, one often helps interpret the others. We see that very clearly in the New Testament, don't we? In the Gospels, as they're talking about what's happening in the life of Jesus, and very frequently they'll say, these things happen to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. They're making that connection for us to help us understand this is not a coincidence. (laughs) These things have been talked about and tied together from the very beginning. No book of the Bible ever stands alone. They're all connected in a way that reveals God's miraculous plan of redemption. And it's my conviction that Nehemiah knew that this was true. And at the very least, we see very clearly in his prayer that he believes deeply in God's loyal love and His covenant promise. To his people that's the basis of his prayer but here's something that we now know is true and i personally wonder if he might have known about this as well you see there was another man like nehemiah who had earned respect during that time of captivity in babylon this man also had an audience with a king Any ideas of who this might be he lived before the time of Nehemiah, just before the time. I don't think they probably lived during a time where they met each other, but I feel quite certain that Nehemiah, at the very least, had heard of the prophet Daniel. And Daniel had some things to say that directly relate to the life of Nehemiah. You want to see him? Let's do it. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is fun stuff. So Daniel chapter 9, let's uh, look at what he says beginning in verse 1. Let me say this before we read verse 1. Very often when you see very specific dates and, and, and timing given, there's a reason for that. Okay? We see that in Nehemiah, didn't we? Beginning of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Look what happens here in Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as a word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, here's what's important about this. The date that Daniel gives us, is the time in which the, Medians, the Medes and the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire around 538 B.C. Darius is one of those Median kings. And somewhere during this time, Daniel ran across some things that had yet been understood. These were writings specifically from the prophet Jeremiah, who was speaking about the time that it would take for that desolation of Jeremiah to continue, or how long it would last. He says specifically, it would be a period of 70 years. Now based on the date that that Daniel gives us, and the date that we know he was first taken into exile, this is about 67 years. So Daniel's got to be thinking, wait a second, this could happen any time now. And so he's a little bit confused about what's going on, and what the Lord may have in mind here. So like Nehemiah, he commits himself to prayer. And I want you to take some time on your own. We won't do it this morning. But look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, and examine the prayer of Nehemiah. I mean, the prayer of Daniel. Because what you're going to find, it is almost exactly like the prayer of Nehemiah. He begins, just like Nehemiah, with this heart of adoration toward the great and awesome God. Exact same words. Then he goes on, like Nehemiah, to confess his sin in the sins of his people. He, like Nehemiah, affirms the loyal love of God. And then he prays, like Nehemiah, according to God's Word. The pattern's almost identical. It's truly an amazing connection. And I want you to see how Daniel is looking at the life of Jeremiah and how that's getting connected to his life, and then Nehemiah very possibly makes that connection between them as well. Daniel begins by praying. And then in verse 22, God answers his prayer. So turn over to Daniel chapter 9, verse 22. There's an angel that has appeared to him as a vision in his time of prayer. And Daniel has asked for understanding about what Jeremiah had prophesied. And so the angel is there to give him that understanding. Look at what he tells Daniel. He, and he's talking about the angel Gabriel, gave me instruction and talked with me and said... O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. This is the answer to his prayer. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks. and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on a wing of admonitions will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the whole, on the one who makes desolate. I think Daniel probably got more than he bargained for in that prayer request, because there's a lot that's built up into that, and, and more than one sermon can possibly Explain, But let me tell you specifically what's relevant to our passage in Nehemiah. The angel Gabriel explains to Daniel that Jeremiah was in fact correct. And that there will be a decree after 70 years to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Guess who that decree was given to? Nehemiah. That's what he's asked to do, to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. This is the decree that we just read about. One of the reasons that we know this is the case, and again, this is way more than we can talk about today, but it's too cool to pass up. Okay? If you take what Daniel has said and you do the math, and you calculate the number of years that he has prophesied would take place, he's saying at the moment of time that that city is rebuilt, and you calculate it forward, it would add up to 490 years, which takes us right up until the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem just days before His crucifixion. Which, as verse 26 would say, is when the Messiah will be cut off. I'm telling you this because I want you to see and be convinced, just as I know Nehemiah, And Jeremiah and Daniel were all convinced and that is that God is sovereignly in control down to the very day of what He said was going to happen. I want to tell you that because I believe that there are people who are here this morning whose life is out of control. Who's looking at their circumstances and saying, How? What? Explain this to me. And there are times that we're going to be in a situation where we don't have answers. And we need this because we need to be able to go back to Scripture and go, I know I can't understand it. But there's enough in the testimony of God's revealed word that I am convinced that God is in control, that He is faithful. And that his love is loyal. And he will accomplish what he said he would do. And most importantly, that there was a moment in time that he knew would take place when he would send his son to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. It was the plan from the beginning. And every book of the Bible is tied together to help us see How that plan was revealed and connected for the Savior to come so that we would have a way to be in relationship with God as He originally intended it to be. He is sovereignly in control. Now, whether Nehemiah specifically knew about this prophecy or not really is no consequence. I think he might have. But whether he did or not, it doesn't matter because what we do know is that his patient prayer was grounded in a firm belief in God's faithful provision? Go back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 7, I mean chapter 2, verse 7. So he's asked, um, the king made his request. The king is asked, for a, asked the question, How long will you be gone? He gives him a definite time, and then we'll look at what he says in verse 7. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governor of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanbelay, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek welfare of the sons of Israel. (laughs) And in Verse 8, Nehemiah says, And the king granted these things to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, Nehemiah knew who was sovereignly in control. His boldness before the king was grounded in his faith in God's provision. And so he makes a request. It's a very bold request. Number one, to change the decree. And then he asks for letters that give him safe passage from Babylon to Jerusalem. And once he gets there, he asks to have permission to get wood from those who were under the the king's control to be able to rebuild the city walls, to essentially rebuild Jerusalem. And so he makes that request of the king. And did you notice that he was given a military escort, which is not something that he asked for, which tells you something about the relationship that he had with the king. Sure, Nehemiah prepared. We see very clearly that his plan was well thought out. But that plan came as a result of his prayers. Nehemiah had confidence, not in his own abilities, even though we like to admire him for his his wise diplomacy and his, his bold leadership. And that's true. But we need to understand that Nehemiah has been given a gracious gift from God. And he knew that. Which is why he said, The king granted these things to me. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. This is God's plan among God's people. Because God is faithful and true. It was only through the humble obedience of Nehemiah that he was able to be used by God for that purpose. But look at what happens next. You'll see in verse 10, that there's an indication that trouble is brewing because the people that are there don't like the idea of what Nehemiah has come to accomplish. Now, this is just foreshadowing of some big problems that are yet ahead. But look at what happens in verse 11. It says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. That I rose in the night I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Okay, let me just pause there. I read that and I say... He didn't know what he was going to do next. He prayed and God put in his mind what he was going to do next and then he took action. It was God's plan that he then followed, not his plan that he asked God to bless. See the difference? So let's continue. What my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the, king's, to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, and the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. Before he does anything, it says he waits three days. Now, it's very possible that he was just tired, because at best, that, tra- that distance from, uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem would have taken about two months, if you were really moving quickly. And so, he was tired, but I think, We also know something else that he was doing during those three days. He was spending time praying before the Lord. And I think that hesitation gives us another indication that Nehemiah was unwilling to chart a course on his own, that he was going to pause long enough to get clarity of where God was leading, and only then would he follow. And don't you think that there was some level of anxiousness with the people, the remnant that's there in Jerusalem? They don't know what's going on. It says that he didn't tell anybody why he was there. All they know is that the king had made a decree to stop building. And now all of a sudden, there's somebody who's been sent by the king with letters from the king and a military escort from the king who has now made a presence known in Jerusalem. What's he there for? He's not saying. And so there's probably some level of anxiousness about what was happening. And Jeremiah, or Nehemiah was wise. He waited a period of time, and during that time, he had a small group of men that he built a trust relationship with. And those men were willing to go with him in in secrecy at night so as to not create any uh, rumors or, or stir up any anxiousness about what he had planned. He wanted to get a lay of the land to see what was before him. And he knew that God had not called him to do this on his own, so he asked these men to go with him. And I believe they took a look at what they had in store and then very likely went back to the Lord and said, Okay, God. We see what's before us. What do you want us to do? His patient prayer kept Nehemiah in a place of trusting in God's promise. Not in his own abilities. Not in his own plan. Now, there's a lot of things that we can look at as we examine the results of of Nehemiah's patient prayer, that that God-centered focus of his heart. But let me give you a couple of things, three things that that I think we need to take away, that give us some indication that are we pl- praying with that same heart in mind? Are we having that same attitude and, and focus on God? Here's some attributes that we would expect to see if that is in fact the case. The first one, and probably the most important, is the conviction that God is in control. It's the conviction that God's in control. And so, if you believe this is true, then your prayers will always precede your plans. Did you hear what I said? Your prayers will always precede your plans. You will refuse to to take action, no matter how noble the task may be, how obvious what is good and right may seem, until you're convinced that God is leading the way and you're not the one who's in control. You take time to look at God's Word like Nehemiah did. You take time to to seek the counsel of God's people. You take time because you refuse to make the wrong assumption that every need you encounter is yours to fix. You're not compelled to always give counsel into every single crisis that you meet. Because patient prayer reminds you, I'm not the one who's in control. God... What do you want me to do? But on the other side of the coin is the fact that patient prayer often allows you to see things that you would have otherwise missed. It heightens your sensitivity to what God's doing around you. Because when you're praying for something, you're looking for God to answer if you believe that's who you are praying to. I'll give you an example. Terry and I have been praying about some decisions in regards to our youngest son. Uh, In his academic situation, he's got some significant challenges. And to be honest with you, we don't know what to do. And so we've just been praying together, Lord, would you lead us in the right direction? And there's been little things that happen along the way that we're just kind of taking up and we're just going to trust that God's going to bring increasing clarity as time goes on. One of those happened about a week or so ago when Terry was in the office and ran across actually somebody she used to teach with when she was at the junior high. This person is now in the superintendent's office. And so she, because she had been praying about our situation kind of shared with him a little bit about what we were working through. And his response to her was, why don't you and Todd come see me? I want to help. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the answer, but I do know that it's part of it. That God is doing some things to answer our prayer and to give us clarity. And we are being sensitive to little things that we might have, if we weren't praying about it, I promise you, Terry would have said, hi to Mr. Flushy, good to see you. That's the end of that conversation. But because we had been praying about it, we began to ask ourselves, Lord, is this one of the ways that you're going to help us? I believe it is. Patient prayer helps you see things that you might otherwise overlook. Patient prayer reminds you who's ultimately in control. And then finally, patient prayer leads you to a place where you are required to take a step of faith. See, Nehemiah prayed for for four months. He spent time in God's Word. He thought about what he might say and what God might have him do. But there came a day when God opened the door and he had to take that step of faith. And as we looked at in our passage, it was a risky situation. His step of faith required a great deal of risk on his behalf as he walked forward putting his trust in God. And I think very often that's exactly where God wants us to be. Faith, by very definition, is believing in something that's bigger than ourselves, right? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Patient prayer is often characterized by decisions that deepen our faith. Decisions that build our trust. Not in our own abilities, but in God's promise. God's provision. Patient prayer leads us to a place where we are dependent upon God. And so don't expect prayer to remove all the mystery. Patient prayer is what leads us to a place where we learn to walk by faith. But that's okay. Because we're praying to the one who's ultimately, sovereignly in control. And we can trust Him as He promises to lead the way. And we can believe in His sufficiency and what He has accomplished on our behalf. Things that we could not do on our own that He has done for us. And so we can go to Him in the confidence of prayer knowing that He's in control. And we can trust Him. But believe that He's going to put you in a place where that faith is going to be tested. Where you're going to have to take make a decision that requires some element of risk where you may say to yourself, God, if you don't come through, I'm in big trouble. But He wants you to be there because He wants you to see that He's faithful, that His love is loyal, and that you can trust Him. So go to that place. Let's pray together. God, as we come before you, we recognize that our world around us uh, often convinces us that we need to be in control. That we need to uh, be the captain of our own ship. That we need to make sure that we are the ones that are making the decisions to ensure what our future holds. Father, I pray that we're all reminded this morning that You hold our future. That You are sovereignly in control. That there are moments in our life where we can't possibly understand or explain but we've just got to trust you that you're good and right that the whole history of mankind is founded on the plan of redemption that you established in the very beginning and are still carrying out to this day to bring salvation to the world through the person and work of jesus christ so that as we put our trust in him We see that you are faithful, that your love is loyal, and that we can trust you. So, Father, may we live our life consistently in that place in a dependence upon you. and Help help us to, to remember to relinquish our control and give it to the one who's ultimately in control, our good and loving God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.